Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices, and we're happy to welcome Rachel Chu back to the program. She is a Young Voices contributor and a technology fellow for Young Voices. Rachel, good to catch up with you once again. Thanks so much. It's great to chat with you. And just for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, take a moment, if you would, just tell us a little bit about yourself or or anything new and exciting that's that's happening in your world. Yeah, of course. So um, I have been a contributor with Young Voices uh, for about two years now, and I'm currently working at the Committee for Justice as a resident fellow um, specializing in technology and competition policy. Okay, we've got quite an interesting article to discuss today. Uh, You mentioned before we went on the air, you've actually had a lot of response to this op-ed, and it's about about blocking a deal between Microsoft and Activision that uh, is is actually, the the blocking is being attempted by uh, regulators in uh, the UK and the US. First of all, tell me just a little bit about uh, Activision Blizzard. I'm not familiar with it, but people in the world of gaming would probably recognize that name, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, some folks may be familiar with Activision because it's the name that appears before the games that they play. Um, that's because they're a video game maker, a, a, a developer. Um, they're known for popular titles such as uh, Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. And so Microsoft uh, sought to acquire them last year. It was a $69 billion acquisition. So really big stuff here. Um, and for them, they had two purposes for this deal. The first is that, like I said, Activision um, has created a lot of games that are very popular. um, And so having access and ownership over those titles was very appealing to them. The other side is that Microsoft has lagged behind ever since they entered the gaming industry behind Sony and Nintendo. And so for them, they saw acquiring Activision as a way to bolster and improve, develop their cloud gaming side of their their business. And so for them, and I think for consumers as well, this is a very interesting development because cloud gaming um, is very similar to like a streaming service like Netflix, um, where you can stream games. And and um, for consumers, this is important because it means that you won't necessarily need an expensive console to play certain games. Um, and for um, regulators in the U.S. and U.K., I think those two elements of the deal were very problematic for them because in their view, this is a deal that will foreclose um, competition in this uh, very new market, um, even though um, those um, those claims are a little bit unfounded, given what Microsoft um, has tried to do here. Well, that kind of answers wh- where I wanted to go next, because I, I, first of all, I want why are regulators involved in this in the first place? Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, and I guess is the the UK equivalent the uh, Competition and Markets Authority? Are they roughly the same kind of regulatory agencies? Very similar. Um, So both deal with antitrust issues. And what we've seen over the past couple of years from uh, from both regulators is that they're really trying to clamp down on these like big tech companies. And um, for them, they pose um, just a mass amount of power in the market that 
they see as unacceptable. Um, but the thing that's interesting and what I alluded to before here is that Microsoft is actually behaving a little bit differently than some of the other big tech companies that we've seen who have had antitrust concerns. Um, Microsoft has actually said, hey, we want to hear these concerns. We want to address them. Um, and they've really sought to do that. So Microsoft over the past few months um, has entered into agreements with their rivals, um, one in being Nintendo, um, to make sure that they, the Activision games remain accessible. Um, and these agreements um, span several years. And I find that to be very interesting because now we're seeing a company that's saying, hey, let me see what I can do to address um, whatever issues you may see. But even so, that has not been enough in the US and UK. It is important to note that has been enough for the EU, which approved the deal a few weeks ago. Interesting. Now, I have to admit, this this is, has been pretty much, uh, well, it's, it's been Greek to me up until just a couple of weeks ago. My oldest son gifted, I believe it was a PlayStation, to my youngest son. And so, I've been seeing a lot of uh, Call of Duty <laughs> kind of stuff going on, you know, on our, our television. But uh, I didn't realize until this point that uh, really, uh, you know, th there were only certain consoles that you could play these games on. So, on the one hand, that sounds like it would be a really good deal for people who want to be able to play these uh, games, these cloud based games on devices other than those proprietary ones. Absolutely. So when I'm looking at a deal like this, it seems like it would be very good for consumers. And honestly, that's what these governments should also be looking at as well. Uh, because ultimately, if they're making decisions that are good for individual competitors, well, that's not supposed to be their focus, you know, and it's not really the government's place to be picking winners and losers in the market. So by targeting Microsoft in this emerging cloud gaming market, they're effectively bolstering the market pos pos position of other companies, specifically like Sony, right? Um, because they've been at the top for a really long time. And this is something that could potentially cause more competition, more innovation, right? And that's something that for another competitor, right? That's not something that they would want to see. And so ultimately, it, it seems that regulators are so focused on trying to exert power over these markets that they're missing the point of what their job really should be. Well, and Rachel, as you point out in your article, it's not all regulators that are necessarily, um, you know, exercising this, uh, well, we want to deny it. Exactly. Um, in fact, the European Union, it sounds like the, the regulators there actually gave it the green stamp. They were okay with it. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the EU, um, China recently as well. Brazil all approved this deal. Um, so what we're seeing here is that the only two um, countries that have tried to stop it are the US and UK. Um, moving forward, we could see changes on that front. Um, the UK decision is being appealed. Um, the US, so the Federal Trade Commission sued to try to block the deal, but ultimately it still has to play out in the courts. Um, so. A few months down the line, we may be talking about um, this acquisition in a very different light. I hope that's the case. Um, it seems that um, the present situation, if it stands, is not great for consumers and specifically consumers in the US and UK. Um, given that the deal has been approved in so many other countries, it may be the case that if there's 
only a couple of countries that choose not to approve the deal, Microsoft can go ahead and do it, and it will just be the consumers in those countries who lose out. Interesting. And I, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get my mind around, okay, so what is it about the U.S., what it is about the U.K. that uh, that would have them be the, the ones, you know, to want to hold out and say, no, 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 we don't want this to happen. And the only thing I can go to is, well, is it because their governments are so much bigger or at least so much more, uh, <laughs> shall we say, involved in people's lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say so. I think specifically on the antitrust front, um, the U.S. and U.K. have been trying to exert themselves in a very strong way. And they um, are interested in showing, hey, like we can stop big mergers and acquisitions if we want to. And it's that mentality of big is bad. Um, which is so false because misconduct is bad, right? And so we shouldn't be punishing companies simply because they're big. Um, but ultimately, that's the strategy um, that these regulators have um, sought to um, exert. That does kind of sound like the, the the measure of, well, you know, big must mean that they're up to something. They're succeeding at that level. You know, there must be something uh, not so good going on. Tell me this, Rachel, for, for people who are not uh, familiar with the, the uh, especially the cloud-based gaming market, um, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, you know, look, some people still hesitate to, you know, to, to use a smartphone, but this, uh, it seems like our, our media and our our, uh, our entertainment has really come a long, long way. Uh, any estimate of how many people worldwide make, uh, make use of these types of systems? That's a good question. So um, the companies that have entered the fray in cloud gaming have had mixed success. Um, Google launched their their own service and recently shut it down. Um, So it's really hard to say. And I think that that is notable here as well, that this is an emerging market. There's still a lot of research and development that has to be done, which is why it's good if there's companies that are willing to make that investment, that they should be able to do that. And that's one of the the things that we're missing out now um, because this deal has been stalled. So it sounds like one of those cases where more places at the table actually could benefit everybody rather than, you know, uh, taking mm-hmm. away opportunity from everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We're talking with Rachel Chu. She is a contributor and technology fellow for Young Voices. Rachel, for people who want to follow your work, where can they find your writing? Where can they find you on social media? Yes, so I'm on Twitter at Rachel H2. Very good. Great to talk with you once again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Eric Peterson back to the program. He's the Director of Policy for the uh, Satoshi Action Fund and also a contributor to Young Voices. And Eric, if I've left anything out of your, uh, your resume there, please feel free to fill it in. No, I think you pretty much got it. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the program. And there's some really uh, timely stuff going on. We're going to talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. And in particular, I'm looking at an article you'd written for RealClearEnergy.org about the uh, Biden administration proposing a tax on Bitcoin mining, which I know that they're suspicious of cryptocurrency. I've, I've uh, seen this from time to time. But 
There are also a couple of other developments that follow on the heels of this. So first, let's talk about uh, taxing Bitcoin mining, and then we'll talk about a couple other things that show there's there's some real hostility towards cryptocurrency out there. Yeah, a lot of people uh, listening to your show are no doubt familiar with Bitcoin, the asset. Um, you know, it's the first cryptocurrency. It's been around for some time. I'm sure a lot of your listeners might even own a small part of one. Bitcoin mining are essentially just the data centers that process the transaction. So if, Brian, if I'm sending you some Bitcoin, uh, the miners are just folks running these big data centers that got a bunch of computers working really quickly uh, to process those transactions, just in the way that Google or Amazon Web Services have um, you know, data centers to so you can watch Netflix. Um, now, the Bitcoin data centers use a little bit more energy than the traditional data centers, and that's become a real concern from some on the environmental side. And as a result, the Biden administration has proposed a 30% tax on energy use for cryptocurrency, or specifically Bitcoin mining. Uh, this is troubling for a few reasons. Number one, since China has banned that practice, there's been an explosion in uh, the Bitcoin data centers over here in the United States. You've seen billions of dollars in investment, thousands of jobs created, mostly in rural parts of the country. So it, it's been a real big boom to a lot of sort of formerly uh, industry towns that Bitcoin miners have moved in, taken over that space and created some jobs. So uh, the tax is concerning on that level. It's also the first tax that I've ever seen on the end use of electricity, which is really interesting because if the government can tax what you're using energy for, not just that you're using energy, that I think opens a real slippery slope. So why did China ban uh, Bitcoin mining? So China just didn't ban Bitcoin mining. They banned Bitcoin altogether. And there's a good reason for that because they're pushing their own digital currency and that has a lot to do with their social credit score. And if you have a a cryptocurrency where people can transact freely without the permission of the government, that's a real concern. That's exactly Uh, what I was suspected. And and I'm wondering if that's kind of the same animus behind... well, behind why we, we see the Biden White House and and uh, other government agencies uh, not uh, not looking favorably upon cryptocurrency here in the U.S. Yeah, I think we had a really interesting quote from uh, SEC Chairman Gensler today, which he said, we don't need any other digital currency. We have the U.S. dollar, which is a digital currency, uh, which is a which is a strong quote from him uh, on the heels of you know, back-to-back lawsuits uh, from the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission against some of the largest cryptocurrency companies. In the world. Well, let's let's pivot here and let's talk about a couple of developments just in the last forty-eight hours that that would show. Um, you know, there there's a very clear effort underway to make sure that uh, cryptocurrency isn't too much of an option here, if an option at all. Yeah. So the as I alluded to, the Securities and Exchange Commission has released two lawsuits in the past forty-eight hours. Yesterday, it was against Binance um, and their CEO. Now, that lawsuit is fairly similar to the actions you've seen against FTX. They essentially accuse the um, exchange of commingling funds, using them for their own purposes, uh, benefiting on the back end, uh, essentially sort of fraudulent business practices. Now, the one that came today, I think people were expecting to happen for some time, uh, but it came sooner than people thought, and that's against Coinbase. Now, Coinbase is a, is a much different company. It's a US-based company. They've been around since 2012. Um, their stock is available for purchase on the US Stock Exchange. And they essentially accuse them of being uh, not registering as a broker. So the fact that I can take my dollars, put them on Coinbase, and then Coinbase gives me cryptocurrency and not registering 
um, is a problem. They've also accused some of the coins that they're selling of being securities and some of the services they offer. But essentially, uh, the gist of the case is that by selling any tokens that just were not Bitcoin, uh, that they violated uh, security rules. And this has obviously been a, been a huge, you know, I would say, shock to the industry. People thought it was coming, but it came a little sooner than people thought. Okay, now I'm not well versed in cryptocurrency. I, you know, I have a vague idea of how it works and how blockchain technology works. But the the impression I get as I hear you describing this is that the Bitcoin or other blockchain based currencies, cryptocurrencies, would would offer competition in terms of currencies out there. And it sounds to me like like the U.S. government is adamant they do not want competition. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You've seen a lot of conversations about a you know potential central bank digital currency or using the same sort of blockchain technology, and integrating it into the way the dollar um, functions. Now, obviously, that I think that's still a few years off, but there are tests going on right now, and it's clear, uh, at least from this administration and some of their actions, that they clearly, you know, think that the U.S. dollar should still be king and that other options for consumers. Uh, could be potentially troubling. And I think if you talk to people who have traveled abroad, you can see that there is a lot of efficiencies in the system. Uh, trying to send remittances can be very expensive. So blockchain technology offers you know solutions for a lot of these issues, um, but it seems that the current administration has taken a far more hostile approach um, to the industry at large, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or the folks that are making it possible for people to buy and sell it. You know, and I don't want to sound too conspiratorial. I'm sure this will anyway, but um, fiat currency like the U.S. dollar, um, when you consider what it takes to, to call a, a dollar into existence, you know, when it's they can be created essentially out of thin air. They can be, uh, you know, fractional banking where you can you can lend out, you know, 10 times as much as you actually have represented in savings and so forth. But the, the scope in which you know people utilize it means it could be used as a huge mechanism of control, and and that's ultimately what I'm getting at. Is it sounds like um, the the naysayers for for cryptocurrency, particularly the government regulators regulators who don't care for it, it sounds like they they want to maintain control, and and the only way they can do it, I suppose, is uh, use the might of the government to, you know, either outlaw or otherwise pressure these alternatives out of existence. Yeah, I mean, the United States has benefited, you know, essentially since the end of World War II for being the world's uh, reserve currency. Um, it has allowed us to borrow and go to debt on, on very cheap rates. Um, it's the currency of choice around the world. That has, you know, large fiscal benefits for the United States. And obviously, there's been some conversations around uh, other, com- other countries sort of de dollarizing or using uh, potentially blockchain technology. And clearly, with, without being conspiratorial at all, if that were to happen, it would be um, a huge economic defeat for the United States. So whether or not that's uh, along with the sort of actions by the SEC in cryptocurrency right now, um, it would be speculation to say, I don't think it's speculative to say that um, strong alternatives to the U.S. dollar would be a threat to the way that our uh, economy currently functions. Well, and that was that was actually where I, where I wanted to go next. I wanted to ask you what you felt the likelihood was that the dollar would remain the world's reserve uh, currency. I hear a number of different voices out there, but I'd love to get your take. Is it likely that uh, the dollar will be removed as the reserve currency and something else will take its place? 
I mean, I don't think that's going to happen in the short term at all. If you look at the number of people around the world who um, hold cryptocurrency, it's certainly growing in the United States. Uh, you know, it's about 10% of Americans have hold cryptocurrency of some kind. So that's still a long way to go before we get to something else. Um, however, again, that the, the risk of that is so great uh, to the U.S. economy that any sort of chinks in the armor um, should obviously be taken very seriously by policymakers in Washington. And it, I think, um, at least on this part of it, in terms of the competition part, they are taking it very seriously. Whether they take it seriously enough to get the fiscal house in order and you know start uh, paying down our debt and reducing our deficit, uh, you know that remains to be seen. All right, we are talking with Eric Peterson. He's the director of policy for Satoshi Action Fund and a contributor to Young Voices. Eric, where can people follow your work? Yeah, they can find us at satoshiaction.io. Um, we are the only state-based uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining advocacy organization. So if you're interested in what's going on, the cryptocurrency space, especially in your states, which have a large impact over it, um, give us a follow. We've got a great weekly newsletter. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices, and I'm happy to welcome Benjamin Ayanian back. Benjamin Ayanian back to the program. Um, it hasn't been that long since we talked either that or else time is just going really quick. But Ben, welcome. It's good to see you again. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it is, but either way, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Well, and as always, we have something of great substance and worth to discuss. And and it has to do with AI, which I find I'm having more and more conversations uh, with not only Young Voices contributors, but actually people in everyday life about AI. So it's I don't think it's my imagination. It looks like AI is here to stay and it is finding its way into our lives and into our lexicon more and more every day. Yeah, AI is definitely here to say to stay. Its adoption rate um, is something that you know we have never seen before in any other technology. We're seeing you know people use AI for their jobs uh, to create you know startups um, in everyday life if they just want to learn about something or even get advice. You can go to a large language model like ChatGPT and uh, go go talk with an AI bot and, and learn something new or try and work through a problem with it. It could write you a business plan. It can write your emails for you, whatever, uh, whatever you want, really. So it's definitely here to stay. Well, and one of the things that I know is is a big topic right now, at least uh, for uh, different governments around the world, is how do we regulate AI? It's a new enough technology that uh, really the books haven't been written yet on well, what's the best way or how much should we regulate it. But uh, talk to me about what, what's happening in terms of regulation. And then let's dive into your article about uh, Congress inviting actually one of the one of the AI system founders to, to come in and tell them, here's here's how you can best regulate it. Yeah, so governments are definitely trying to figure out how to, in in their words, you know, get out in front of this technology and really try and steer it in a direction that they see as desirable. Now, I don't think that that's the right approach at all. Um, there's a great book I actually want to recommend to everyone listening called Permissionless Innovation by um, Adam Fierer. I can never pronounce his last name right, but um, it's a great book that talks all about the details of why preemptive regulation um, in response to imaginary or theoretical harms um, is actually bad. 
for consumers, for society, and for civilization as a whole. Um, these Every technological development that has changed our world has come with fear of you know what comes next or what is it going to do to us. And so far, the techno panics have not you know turned out to be fortune tellers. Uh, techno panics have been wrong. Uh, technology has vastly improved our society, but it does come with risks, and there are trade offs involved. So to look at some of the specifics with artificial intelligence. Um, Congress did just invite a panel to come speak about shaping AI regulation, and Sam Altman, the CEO of ChatGPT, was on that panel. And they basically asked Mr. Altman, you know, tell us, how do we regulate um, your technology? And Sam Altman is actually a, a big proponent of AI regulation. Um, now, a lot of members of the media, even a few politicians, called this moment historic. You know, seeing major players um, in an industry asking for regulation. It's really not historic at all. You know, if we look throughout history, Facebook asked for social media regulation. Um, Amazon asked for minimum wage laws. And if we actually look at these companies um, really closely, we realize that regulation would help them. You know, uh, regulation of speech online would help um, protect Facebook from competition. M raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would hurt Facebook's competitors um, because Amazon already pays a minimum of $15 an hour. And so a lot of times the motivation for companies asking to be regulated is actually to protect them from competition. And if, if we implemented things uh, such as licensing requirements for AI development, which is something that was talked about in the congressional hearing, or even a regulatory body like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, um, we would see current players insulated um, from the effects of, or some of the effects of competition, um, and it, so it would benefit them as a whole. Interesting. Yeah, I I mean, it's, it's like inviting the fox in. How can we make the hen house more secure? Please tell us. <laughs> Right. Oh, absolutely. And and the fears that are brought up don't necessarily lend themselves to a need for any regulation in the near future. People are afraid of um, the greater uh, circulation of misinformation. But we see that on social media. We see it coming from mainstream news. We see it coming from government officials. Um, there's there's no monopoly on misinformation or the circulation of it. And so, yes, artificial intelligence will allow people to circulate misinformation, but that's not a new concern. Um, another big concern is what effect will it have on joblessness? Well, we actually look throughout history. The United, um, it, human beings are incredibly bad at predicting uh, the effects of technology on employment looking forward. They often predict, um, predict doom and gloom, and it just doesn't come to fruition. Now, there are some people who are hurt by technological advancements. There are some industries that get replaced, but in the end, we always see more and more jobs created as a result. And so there's no reason to preemptively regulate uh, this technology for 
fears that we have no good evidence um, actually bear fruit. And we don't want to go the other direction, too, and just say, well, what does Jim Cramer say? Because <laughs> right. he's, he's got such a good track record. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and, and I, I've, I've interviewed Adam Thierer before, and I, I love his idea of permissionless innovation. And, and I really believe it allows for the greatest amount of innovation to take place, where the presumption is, as long as you're not creating harm or you're not defrauding somebody, you know, feel free to innovate as opposed to right now, it seems like our default setting is, nope, you better show up hat in hand and be ready to pay lots and lots of fees and, you know, ask permission, mother may I, before you do anything. It seems like that would stifle some of the best creativity. No, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head there, you know, with... Um Permission, permissionless innovation, it allows innovators, people with unique specific knowledge to work on different problems through trial and error to ultimately allow us to innovate and make people's lives better. And so the more trial and error we have going on, the better that we will all be in the end. Now, there are certain um, certain technologies or tools you might might have more of a hands-on approach towards. And actually an example he gives in the book is that governments don't let citizens experiment with bazookas. Like that makes perfect sense. Um, there, there are certain areas where, you know, some rules and regulations, some oversight are, are definitely needed. Um, but generally speaking, the freedom to innovate and the freedom of people to exchange ideas, to exchange, you know, currency for goods and services, trial and error of, of developing different products. This is how we improve people's lives. We don't do it by strangling um, different sectors and really cementing the current players of those sectors um, as the leaders you know, going forward. And uh, so I think it's really important that we don't overregulate this technology. I was really concerned when I heard the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was was a you know ideal model possibly for how to regulate AI when well we look at the nuclear um, energy industry in the United States and it's basically been regulated out of existence. So there's right. still some nuclear power plants, but the the cost of developing new ones is unbelievably high. That there's just not activity in that space anymore. Nuclear energy, which really should be a huge part of. Um, the energy infrastructure in the United States is is dying out. And so I hope that they don't take that same approach to AI because it, it has the potential to, to help a lot of us out. Ben, I know at the state level, there have been a number of states that have instituted what are known as regulatory sandboxes, which which greatly lighten the regulatory load for new and innovative businesses. And of course, it's not you know a free for all, but it, basically they're not stuck asking permission for every single move that they're going to make. They're given time to develop what they're doing. And if they can show that they can do it without you know, further outside regulation, then more power to them. Is there any chance of something like that happening on the national level? Or is the, uh, is the bureaucracy at the federal level just too much and too territorial to ever allow for such a possibility? Yeah, I, I think that that remains to be seen, honestly. I mean, there have been um, pushes at the federal level for certain regulation that have died out. I mean, you don't hear a lot of talk of banning TikTok anymore. I'm not saying that that won't happen still, but that was all the craze for a couple of weeks this year. Um, and it seemed like it had a lot of support. Some good arguments were put forth um, against it. And it kind of seems as though it fizzled out. We'll see if it pops back up anytime soon. Um, but so there's really no way to tell. Um, obviously, when there's momentum for something, you know, you feel like it's inevitable. AI regulation is coming. But 
um, until we actually see, you know, pen to paper in Congress and votes um, coming forward, then, you know, it really remains to be seen. I hope that it's a hands-off approach for now. Okay, we are visiting with Benjamin Ayanian. He is a contributor and innovation fellow at Young Voices. Ben, where can people follow you? Yeah, follow me on Twitter at Benjamin Ayanian or Instagram at Biyanian13. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today, and I'm happy to welcome Nitu Arnold back to the show. Uh, She's a Young Voices contributor. And Nitu, I'm going to ask you, if you would, please tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure. I'm a research fellow at the National Association of Scholars, where I focus on a lot of different higher education issues from financial issues to what's happening in journalism and media education. And I know you've brought me on the show today to talk about uh, media literacy education in K through 12 schools. Yeah. And, you know, okay, I've heard the phrase media literacy education, but I, I don't think I stopped to really, you know, dig in and see, well, what exactly does that mean? So for people like me who are just getting their minds around this, when we say media literacy education, what does that encompass? Right. So media literacy can go by a lot of different names, media literacy, digital literacy, um, information literacy. But really, the goal is the same, which is to teach students how to navigate the media environment. And advocates for media literacy education will claim that they're that they want to teach students to analyze and evaluate the media that children consume. And so. That doesn't sound so bad right now. Everything I've just said when we're concerned about so much information that children are exposed to, that doesn't sound bad and it doesn't have to be. But I think it's important to see what these advocates actually say. And what I've learned through my research on media literacy education is that they don't want to just stop at teaching students to be civil and polite online. That's actually something an academic paper said. Uh, They want to teach students more about Um, some more divisive topics and political issues. You know, one thing that's come up is critical media literacy, which goes even a step further than just analyzing the news. It's by teaching students to look at the news from an identity-based lens to make, and they're essentially making assumptions about problems that don't necessarily exist. They're, They're trying to look for things and making a big deal out of things that may not be happening. You know, I think a good example of this would be if a news station has primarily white anchors, the assumption would be that the news station is racist and it doesn't consider other factors such as maybe the location could just be primarily white. So there's a higher chance of just choosing white anchors. It could be that it's just simply about who was best positioned for the job. Uh, And so I think it teaches students to look at issues from one particular lens. And it's not really about teaching them to evaluate and analyze the news. And so we're really just introducing 
a lot of risk and costs at the slight chance that students could be more educated on the media that they consume. Something you point out in your article in Reason is that uh, some of this curricula is actually designed, actively designed rather, to uh, inculcate them with uh, a progressive ideology. And and it does this by casting shade on um, other viewpoints. So in other words, it'll set up, well, these are the sources you can trust and anything outside of this, you know, would be considered unreliable. Right. There's actually a lesson plan that I obtained by Street Law, which is a nonprofit organization, and they provide examples of articles of um, satire, news, opinion, and erroneous news. And the examples that they provide for uh, either opinion or erroneous news, so opinion would be biased news here, would be uh, more right-wing sources, but they don't provide the same for left-wing sources. And, you know, uh, advocates for media literacy would claim that this is not meant to be political. They're just examples. And the idea of questioning those in power can be applied uh, by anybody, regardless of your political viewpoints. And yet, I would ask, then why aren't the examples challenging the sources that are conservative, for example. And so it does introduce a lot of bias. And for a lot of students, they may not be thinking too much about the associations of where they're getting their news, especially outside of class. But if you get this kind of education over and over and over again, you're going to start to make associations uh, and it kind of becomes second nature. That's uh, what an interesting warning. And and it was some years ago, someone pointed out to me something. I, I've worked in, in conservative talk radio for many, many years, but I, I, I understood there there's a difference in, in the, the way that uh, certain news organizations or, or commentary journals approach their audience. And this is how it was explained to me. You tell me if this makes any sense. There's, there's kind of an enemy-driven thinking, which is like the lowest level, mainly based on emotion, lots of hyperbole in their writing. Um, you know, front page mag would be one of these. You might get some factual information, but there's a lot of emotion driving it. And there's a lot of anger that tends to drive it. Then you have a little more um, nuance, a little more scholarly approach as you move up, you know, national review might be, uh, you know, a a slightly higher one. And then there's even more sophistication as you get up into journals like uh, foreign affairs or things like that. And, And it all depends on the audience to whom they're writing. Does that make sense? Have you seen anything similar in your research? Uh, Yes. And everything you're talking about here, I've noticed this with many kinds of news organizations. I think it's um, it's kind of a problem that this is what we've resorted to, that it has to be very emotion, emotionally driven instead of sticking to the facts. And I've read this somewhere that it's not so much that uh, the media necessarily gets facts wrong. There are times they do, but it's usually an omission of information. I think that's the big problem. And one of the ways to overcome that is to ask good questions. And media literacy advocates will claim that they're teaching students how to question the news. But given that many students across the country are not receiving good education in literacy and math, how can we expect them to ask good questions when they don't even understand some of the basics? A lot of the news that we read would require 
understanding of statistics or biology or actually even understanding basic reading comprehension. And if you don't have good knowledge base there, then how, where where would you even start to ask questions? So I think that's what's missing here. Oh, man, I, I so appreciate your take on this. And, you know, the examples I gave were primarily examples of conservative media. I'm sure that there is a similar hierarchy, you know, on the progressive side of, you know, yes. this this panders to this level of, of intelligence or sophistication among our readers for, versus this one and this one. Um, so let's talk about how do... How do you recommend people build that ability to ask good questions, to to learn to reason and measure and and think things through for themselves so they know how to think rather than what to think? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts first at uh, there are two components here. Uh, We need stronger uh, literacy education in our schools. I think for a long time, a lot of students were not really learning how to read. It was more guesswork. You know, you're reading a book and you're hoping you get the words right based on the pictures or the surrounding context. And uh, I, I just read recently that New York City Schools is trying to change that. They they were not really following the science uh, for a very long time on best reading practices. And now they're trying to introduce more science-based practices like phonics education. And uh, I think if students know how to read, then their comprehension would be better. And Um, On top of that, I think it's just about being curious. You know, whatever you read, you should be asking maybe basic questions. Who, what, where, when, and why? Why would somebody publish whatever they're writing? Uh, What what should I walk away with when I read this information? And I think it's just having a genuine curiosity about the world. Uh, I think a second component here is at the parental level. So I think parents should be starting these conversations with their kids, uh, you know, paying attention to the kind of media that the students may be um, exposed to and using that as a way to start conversations, whether it's at the dinner table or walking outside. I think that's a good way to understand where your kids are. And I think just asking kids questions and getting conversations started can help them think about these issues more deeply. And it's always an evolving process. I love it. I love it. And I I would add my own that I would add to that is learn to read old books. You know, I mean, like yes. classics of Western literature, um, they're hard. They, they're, they're over our heads for most of us. I know it's, you know, it's, it, it takes effort sometimes to understand what's being said. But a person who does that will find that uh, their own thinking becomes much more ordered and they become more capable of asking, you know, the right kind of questions to make sure and, that they have a full understanding. And you become exposed to various ideas uh, and, and you might even notice patterns, whether it's reading historical documents and then seeing maybe some of those patterns playing out today, but that can be very useful. Oh, I love it. Okay, we are talking with Neetu Arnold. Where, where can people follow you? Where's the best way to, uh, to follow you either on social media or follow your writing? Yeah, on Twitter at Neetu, N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. Very good. Hey, it's been wonderful having this conversation. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Yes, thank you.